me begin by extending my thanks to Asla and to Susan and to everybody else who's been involved, Patricia, with, with organizing um, this conference in honor of Patrick Wolf. Um, as I remarked yesterday, um, in my own field, if I can still talk about fields, um, in Ireland there are nothing but fields, um, Patrick's influence is far greater than his actual engagement with Ireland. I was quite surprised looking in the index of traces uh, of history a while ago when I was sort of thinking about what I would say here to find only two references to Ireland, both to the adjective Irish and both having nothing to do with Irish in Ireland, but only to do with Irish in exile or in immigration. Um, it's surprising to me, not because I feel that Patrick should have worked on Ireland, that would be a weird little piece of reverse imperialism on the part of Irish studies, but, but because, because his, his work does, in fact, in, from my perspective, really illuminate things that have happened uh, over seven, eight hundred, nine hundred years almost at this point. Um, which means, of course, that you know, Ireland has been colonized much, much longer than any other instance that's been mentioned in the last two days, which is either reason to hope in Patrick's wonderful way, or reason to despair profoundly. Uh, you know, 850 years is a long time. Um, the question of Ireland's colonization is actually a very interesting one, because although to many people here it might seem self-evident that Ireland was a colony, the proposition has been contested very, very vigorously since some of us started introducing colonial discourse and post-colonial studies into the Irish context, really, I guess, in, in the mid-1980s. Um, surprisingly, it remains a very, very live question whether Ireland was colonized at all. Um, part of that's historiographical. There are historians who feel that Ireland's relation to the rest of the so-called British Isles was that of one kingdom among several kingdoms, all of which owed tribute to a central monarchy, um, and therefore was not, strictly speaking, colonized. But of course, that historical quibble over the evidence um, is shadowed by another much larger question, which is fundamentally political. And that was that if in the middle of the 1980s you admitted that Ireland historically had been colonized, that meant you had to admit that the entity of Northern Ireland remained a colonial possession of Britain, and that might have given sanction to the ideas of Republicans who were conducting an armed struggle at the time. And therefore, those of us who believed in colonialism were fellow travelers of terrorists. And believe me, that could raise some hackles. Um, there was, of course, also the question as to whether white people in Europe could actually be colonized, and, and peculiarly, people really did think that was an objection. And partly what I want to talk about today is, is the way in which um, not only Patrick's work, but also the work of people like Cedric Robinson, who have been invoked already, um, really nails that whole problem of the connection of racialization with phenotype, which is not uh, structurally a necessary relationship at all. So in my own view, hardly surprisingly, um, Ireland's conformity to the settler colonial model dates at least from the 16th century onwards. Now, the 16th century, the Elizabethan period in English history, um, was the period in which the English monarchy began to consolidate its conquest of Ireland, which had begun under the Normans in 1169 with the invasion then. 
The Normans had singularly failed to extend their colony beyond the area that's known as the Pale in Ireland, and which has given the, the expression beyond the Pale, which is where the barbarians live. Um, so the, the Pale was the area in which the Normans had succeeded in dominating, although they had actually settled much further and had integrated uh, into Gaelic civilization, Irish civilization, becoming, as the saying went, more Irish than the Irish themselves. So there was a real problem um, demographically for the Elizabethans, which is that the Anglo-Norman uh, settlement had actually integrated with that Gaelic population, become Catholic, employed harpists, employed bards, and so forth to sing their genealogies. And so at times of political tension, it was possible for the Anglo-Normans to side with the Gaelic clans and to rebel in increasingly successful uh, rebellions against English domination. So demographically, first of all, in terms of settler colonialism, the Elizabethan solution that then continued under the Stuarts in the 17th century uh, and into the Cromwellian period was what was known in Ireland as plantation. The displacement and dispossession of a predominantly Irish-speaking and Gaelic population by a, a population of planters, most of whom um, were Scots, in some cases, Welsh and English. Um, the language of plantation, of course, marks the extent to which Ireland served as an experimental laboratory for the coeval emergence of English possessions in the so-called New World. Um, Cedar Robinson, of course, starts uh, his uh, discussion of race and the transferability of race from old Europe into the New World with that fact. Um, although he actually develops the, the Irish uh, relation to race more into 19th century industrialism and really doesn't develop um, the, the conception of Ireland as an experiment for, for settler colonialism here. It's Nicholas Canney and a number of other Irish historians in a, in a work called The Westward Enterprise who really developed that model. But this, alongside the demographic uh, displacement of one section of the population by another, went a discourse of civility versus barbarism or civility versus savagery. So for a very long time, dating back to the Norman conquest and earlier, there had been a kind of clash of civilizations discourse on the Irish as an uncivil people, promoted in particular in the canonical work of uh, Geraldus Cambrensis, or Gerald of Wales, um, who drew really on Greco-Roman sources that were discussing the Scythians and other barbaric people in order to use those classical tropes to describe the Irish. This morphs, however, as Claire Carroll, the, the uh, Irish Renaissance historian, has shown in Elizabethan discourse into a work on the Irish as savages. Now, you can see why this move might have taken place. The Barbaroi were really just another ethnic, ethnic people. The ascription to the Irish of savagery, which was learnt in part from Spanish discourse on the New World, re regarded um, them as a people incapable of civilization and requiring extirpation by genocide through war and conquest, or as I'll come back to, through famine, or else by reform, which meant, of course, subjection to English law and English norms of civility. So and I think Claire Carroll's work here, I should just say incidentally, since I'm, I'm like other people here, out of my period, um, Claire Carroll's work is very important for showing these intricate relations between the English discourse on Ireland and the Irish discourse refuting it with Spanish uh, arguments about the New World at that time. Um, English civility was in particular 
opposed to the representation of the Irish as a nomadic or mobile people. This had to do in particular with a practice called bullying, which was the movement of cattle at different times of the year to different locations for pasturing. Um, so that the, the, the Irish clans um, really res uh, relied on cattle as the primary source of subsistence and moved that cattle to the, to the wetter areas at certain times and to the drier areas and others and so forth in order, in order to use the land most effectively. In other words, it was actually an ecological system of using the very particular climatic and soil conditions in Ireland. But they also um, regarded the Irish as savage in terms of their dress, their customs, their diet, etc., etc. Um, I won't tell you about clabber because you'll probably be disgusted and then feel guilty for feeling like the English did. Anyway, the, the importance of the notion of Irish mobility is something I want to come back to because what I wanna, really want to focus on today is, is this question of structure and event, not so much in terms of the structure of colonial dispossession as in the structure of psychic formations that afflict the settler. Um, it is the idea of, of nomadism morphs into the Irish, uh, I, the idea of the Irish as being a particularly mobile people. It's important also, and I stress this because of the enormous importance that religious uh, strife and religious typologies have taken as a way of explaining the Northern Irish conflict and indeed Irish nationalism as a whole um, outside the framework of colonialism. It's very important to notice how the discourse on Irish savagery or even of Irish barbarism both preceded and informed the distinctions that would later come to be predicated on, on the religious difference between Protestant Britain and, and Catholic Ireland. Eventually, I think these uh, fundamental discursive differences between the savage and the, and the barbarian on the one hand and the civil on the other stabilize in a religious encoding of what's fundamentally a system of uh, racial distinctions. So here again, we can come back to the notion that, that Miriam raised of, of race denied by religion. So to come to this notion of a settler colonial psychic formation, the combination in Ireland of the settlement of a loyal Protestant and British identified Scots-English population among a hostile, resentful, and dispossessed native population on the one hand with a discourse of civilizational difference on the other, produces in Ireland the enduring and informing structure of difference that turns to invoke again Patrick's terms, the event of conquest into the structure of a separate colonial formation. And I just, just want to throw on the table, I think what Patrick actually says is not that settler colonialism um, is not an event but a structure, but invasion is not an event but a structure. And that's actually a crucial difference because it forces us to imagine the, the structure of settler colonialism as something that's understood in terms of psychic invasion and practical, obviously, uh, empirical invasion also. But the point I want to make here is, is that events are not necessary to be understood as punctual, but rather as uh, practices, um, occurrences, happenings that take shape and course from the structure that the event itself changes. So there's a dialectical relationship between event and structure rather than simply the displacement of event or the supplantation of event by a structure. My emphasis here will be on the enduring nature of a certain settler psychic structure through the various political arrangements that sought to adjust the modes of England's domination of Ireland 
from the Elizabethan, Stuart, and Cromwellian plantations of the 17th century through to the Union of England and Ireland of 1800 and the eventual partition of Ireland in 1922. That psychic structure is not unfamiliar to you from other settler societies to the extent that Albert Menny's famous portraits of the colonizer and the colonized seem entirely apt to the Irish colonial context. But what I want to do is, is read it here strategically through the Ulster Protestant poet John Hewitt's remarkably honest poem, The Colony, which uses a vaguely Roman colonial context as an allegorical structure for the relation of the planter to the gale. Even though it was written in 1949, so 27, 28 years after the partition of Ireland and the formation of a Northern Irish state, the kinds of things that he's adducing explain a psychic uh, condition of the Protestant settler in this moment, in 1949, that is 20 years before the troubles actually took place, um, in order to, to draw on historical events to explain a contemporary structure. So the, the English civilizational discourse about the Irish produced a fully elaborated set of differential binarisms that construct a logic of racial distinction. So that we could almost say, in, in terms of uh, Lorenzo's talk earlier, that we could think of settler colonialism as a kind of arrested dialectic, not as productive of Benjamin's dialectic as, at a standstill, but a dialectic unable to move beyond the positing of oppositions to somewhere else. And, and partly, I think, the fixity of settler colonial mentalities has to do with this self-entrapment within a structure of binarism that's impossible to escape if you wish to maintain a, a domination. So that binarism in Ireland looks like, and this will be familiar to most of you from other contexts, the civil versus the savage, the settled versus the nomadic, the cultivating English farmer versus the pastoral or wild Irish uh, shepherd or, or cattle herder, that is culture versus nature. And then of course, evolving out of the idea of culture versus nature, the progressive versus the backward. And of course, crucially, in the terms of the way in which the state imagines itself coming to cure the chaos that is the sickness of the savage, uh, legality versus lawlessness, the outlawry of the Irish. So um, Hewitt writes in a way that actually is not historically inaccurate. We planted little towns to garrison the heaving country, heaping walls of earth and keeping all our cattle close at hand. Then, thrusting north and west, we fell the trees, selling them off the foothills at a stroke, making quick profits, smoking out the nests of the barbarian tribesmen, clan by clan. He goes on, we took the kindlier soils. It had been theirs, this patient, temperate, slow, indifferent, crop-yielding, crop-denying, in neglect quickly returning to the nettle and bracken, sodden and friendly land. We took it from them. We labored hard and stubborn draining, planting, till half the country took its shape from us. Only among the hills with hair and kestrel will you observe what once this land was like before we made it fat for human use. Uh, it's a classic statement, and I don't know how wittingly, of the logic of Locke, in the, 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 the Lockean logic of land appropriation, and of, in another context, making the desert bloom, that erases all previous forms of human culture and land usage, relegating them to a pre-human failure to use the land. One might think of the beginning of uh, de Tocqueville's um, 
uh, Democracy in America, where he talks about how the Native Americans disappeared because they failed to make proper use of the land. This logic of binary differences, however, very rapidly converts, of course, into one of positional superiority in Said's terms. The Anglo-Scots settler becomes, in every respect, elevated into supremacy over the native gale. As a sociologist Jennifer Todd puts it, the ideology of the settler is inherently supremacist in its conceptual structure. Equality between British identity and Irish identity is not possible because Irishness is constituted as the opposite of Britishness and a negative image of the Irish is implicit in the positive self-image of the British. And so Hewitt, they worship heaven strangely, having rights we snigger at, are known as superstitious, cunning by nature, never to be trusted, given to dancing and the kind of song seductive to the ear, a whining sorrow also they breed like flies. <laughs> that last line, of course, portrays how easily that sense of superiority indifference inverts into the anxious logic of endangerment. To assert one's civility over against the savage is to assume one's location on a literal and metaphorical frontier, dwelling on the very edge of the civil, facing a moral and material wilderness by which one can be overwhelmed. All these, uh, these areas that the, the, the native inhabits, hunkered in their blankets, become, of course, the lurking, uh, the lairs from which they will then come till unobserved they slither down and run with torch and blade among the frontier huts. Now, what, what Hewitt is actually recalling here is an event constantly recalled by Protestants because it has become part of the structure which is the massacre of settlers in 1641. So Hewitt is actually talking about a contemporary psychic formation through a historical memory that, of course, it's impossible for him to have except through, through lore. The trace, then, is a structure in itself and not merely the record of an event. The trace is the structure. Surrounded by the alien and incomprehensible population, the demographic time bomb, the Ulster Protestant feels under constant threat of an assault that has the aim of a reverse elimination, the extermination of the Protestant, familiar perhaps from Israel-Palestine. This takes the illegal administrative form of the establishment of a permanent state of emergency in which the suspension of the law corresponds to the lawlessness of the other that requires it. A permanent special powers act um, in Northern Ireland, which followed on 100 coercion acts of the period from 1800 to 1922, was what Patrick would have called the pre-accumulation of the law that enabled the, the state of emergency to persist in Northern Ireland for over 50 years. A psychic state of emergency, which Memmi describes in terms of the rage of the settler, Patrick's version is Race's deep anatomical moorings bring together geographical and physiological mappings so that a people in the wrong place is experienced as an assault on the body, summoning a reflex response, which, though collectively enacted, is personally experienced at a powerful, intimate level. So I, I had a lot more to say, but I want to end here um, just with adding, given the nature of the panel that we're on, that... Um, if, if one looks at the structure, the psychic structure, we can see it morphing through different moments where different events, for example, the famine uh, of the 1845-52 to period in which two million Irish people disappeared, 
followed by a period of emigration that reduced the Irish population to half what it had been from 8 million to 4 million, where it has remained ever since. That was produced by a peculiar economic formation in which the opposite of elimination took place. The need to extract from the Irish not their labor but their rent enabled a subdivision of Irish land that sustained, uh, with the help of the potato, a population far in excess of what English land could have, could have uh, supported at the same time. But that notion of a redundant, overwhelming population was understood as something that would swamp the British Empire, um, and I can elaborate on that. That then morphs back into a notion that we're familiar with from Algeria of the necessity to produce the property-owning Irish instead of the renting Irish that takes the rest of the 19th century to, to begin to put in place. So this idea of Ireland as a threat to the heart of the empire is something that I think makes Ireland very distinct from other settler colonies, with possible exception of French, France's North African colonies. Precisely because Ireland was always in that ambiguous state of being a colony, but also a colony that the, the empire sought to absorb into itself and not hold at a remote distance. So that in, in many respects, and these are both locations that Patrick's work doesn't directly go to, what's distinctive about Algeria and Ireland is that fact of occupying, as, as Ian Lustig has shown, that intermediary space between being colony out there, being a, a a, a territory disposed to be drawn fully into, into the metropolitan center. And this is what leads us really to, this, to, to have to consider this whole question of the intimacy that I think you were getting at towards the end of your thing, the intimacy between the settler and the, um, the native, the intimacy now between the metropole and its colonies that produces a very different set of much more anxious psychic formations um, that we need to, to draw upon and understand in order to see what separate colonialism has to teach us about race reformation.